2: Hollywood has an ongoing love affair with aliens. And if you believe any of the claims of abduction, some aliens seem to have a love affair with us. In any case, the aliens have once again landed in theaters. The premise of the newest film featuring visiting extraterrestrials is that they've sent a small fleet to Earth, touching down at a dozen different spots. Mind you, that's not going to impress a third of the American public that believes they're already here. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big
1: Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide angle view on science and technology, and we devote one episode a month to critical thinking skeptic check. In this show, aliens are they here? Do they exist anywhere in the universe? We'll look at the case to be made for both these assertions, whether and how we might make contact with aliens, and what to think of the strange and yet unexplained behavior of two distant stars. It's skeptic check, aliens, the evidence.
2: There's a new set of aliens in town, and they're at the local multiplex. Now, we're not gonna spoil it for you, but it's no spoiler to say that the premise of this film, Arrival, is that creatures from space have come to visit.
3: This
1: is the day they arrived.
0: The object touched down 40 minutes ago. Mama, what's going to happen? I don't know.
2: Now, I've seen many, many films about aliens, including this one, and we want to say a couple of things about Arrival. Again, no spoilers. We won't give away why they are here, but note that in many films about alien beings, from Close Encounters to Independence Day to The Day the Earth Stood Still, humans face the challenge of how to communicate with peripatetic protoplasmic beings.
0: This is one of 12. I'm never going to be able to speak their words.
2: Got
4: two days. Figure something out.
0: It's their language.
1: And we're not saying any more about the plot, but it is a fact that scientists do study how we might one day talk to aliens. Some researchers analyze the communication patterns of intelligent species on Earth, such as dolphins, or social insects
2: such as bees and ants. It helps us to understand the language of other animals and may also serve to prepare us for the day we could make contact. Now that's real science. The movie Arrival,
1: however, begins with the premise that the aliens are already here, which is a dramatic conceit. Yet there are some who believe that it's true.
2: I don't know how you spend your Saturdays, but it was a bit unusual for me to spend one speaking in a gathering of alien enthusiasts at an event called AlienCon in Santa Clara, California. Now, I've been to many conferences where the object is to describe how scientists look for life in space. Those are mostly technical discussions. But at AlienCon, the basic premise was that the aliens had been here even 5,000 years ago and maybe still were. Many of the attendees I met at AlienCon found that credible. Maybe you
5: can just tell me your name. Ben Garcia. Okay, and you're here at AlienCon, why? I mean, there are no aliens except the inflatable kind. Just to share the experience, you know? I mean, be with like-minded people and just see what they got to say. I- in particular, I mean, are you a fan of ancient aliens? Oh, yeah. or- ancient aliens. That's why we're here. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. A- and you think that maybe the aliens have uh, been here in the past? I believe so, yeah. I think there's a lot of proof. Well, what strikes you as being uh, kind of convincing? I really like the monolithic stuff, you know, like the uh, the rocks, you know, all, all the... How did they move such you know huge boulders and and the pyramids and stuff like that and you know I'm 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 kind of in, into construction and and stuff like that and I know how hard it is to move heavy stuff and it just kind of blows my mind how the ancient people were able to do that you know and I know that moving a 2,000 pound rock is impossible without you know hundreds of people so how did they do it you know what what what's there what did they do maybe maybe they had hundreds of people <laughs> yeah but I, it's just it's just Cool. I mean, I, I just like seeing all the, everybody's topics and everything like that. My
6: name is Ron. I'm from Chicago. Yeah,
2: and, and Ron, Chicago's like a thousand miles away. So more than that, actually, why'd you come all this way? Well, I've been interested in aliens for almost my whole life. And uh, the Ancient Aliens show was really interesting to me. And it, it kind of changed the way I look at things. Really? You think they've been here? Absolutely. And I still think they're still coming. H- have you met any, or seen anything that was suspicious? Uh, I have not personally. My brother lives in Utah. He's seen about three of them, and he is convinced, and he's not—he's not a lunatic. And I know you work for SETI,
0: and you're looking for things, and maybe there's stuff that you're not telling us. And and I do watch a lot of the Science Channel. I love the, Through the Wormhole. I read a lot of theoretical physics stuff. You know, some of this stuff goes over my head, but it's still very interesting. And I read a lot of books on it.
2: Thank you very much, Ron. Thank you. So these gentlemen, Ben and Ron and many others at the conference, and for that matter around the country, believe that the aliens are here now, or they were at least here in the historical past.
1: These people raise many points, including about buildings with points. For example, how do you explain how the pyramids were built? And what about the crash at Roswell, New Mexico? And how do we know that scientists or the government aren't withholding information about alien visitors?
2: Well, look, my day job is to look for E.T. And for three decades, I've been involved with SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, at the SETI Institute. My day-to-day activities are kind of analogous to what Jodie Foster was doing in the movie Contact. We use large radio antennas hooked up to sensitive receivers to try and eavesdrop on alien broadcasts. Now, detecting a signal would not only be the biggest reward of my career, but the capstone for all the scientists involved in SETI, not to mention being the biggest news story of all time. The point is, I am motivated to find the aliens, whether out there or here, which, frankly, would save a lot of trouble. I mean, if the aliens were on Earth now, well, I mean, we could get busy figuring out how to communicate with them and try to learn something about their biology and their culture. In other words, finding E.T., either out there or here on Earth, would mean job security for me. So for those who think that E.T. is here, I say, show me the evidence. And they take me up on my request. I get calls and letters every day in which people claim to have seen or even photographed alien craft. A few people say they've met the aliens. A few others say they are aliens. I mean, I get a lot of stuff. And honestly, I always respond to these people. But I have yet to see anything that convinces me they're here, but I'm not the only one evaluating the evidence.
1: Ben Radford is a research fellow with the not-for-profit Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, and he's the managing editor of Skeptical Inquirer Science magazine. He's authored or contributed to more than 20 books and written hundreds of articles on unexplained mysteries, the paranormal, and critical thinking, and he has done firsthand research and investigation into alien visitation and UFO sightings.
4: There's quite a wide variety of, of UFO-related claims, everything from alien abductions to alien implants. People will send me videos that they saw online. You know, I can't tell you how many times, hey, can you look at this YouTube video? I think it's a UFO. So if someone sends me a a UFO video, one of the first things I do is look for any evidence of Photoshop or tampering. There's so many different ways to fake these videos. But the, the other thing that I do is look at the context of the claim. So for example, if someone says to me, look at this video of this UFO sighting, there's these weird lights in the sky. My question is, who, what, where, when? When was this? When did this happen? Were there other witnesses? For example, if this happened over Dallas, Texas, why is only one person recording this, these weird lights in the sky? You would expect there to be thousands of eyewitnesses. And so a lot of times what you do is you look at the document in terms of the photograph or the video, but you also bring in forensic evidence from other points of view and you try to corroborate that story.
2: What do the videos typically look like? I mean, you don't see craft with rivets on the side, do you? <laughs> you, you, you typically don't. Oh, well, the ones I get tend to look like, indeed, just a single point of light, kind of blobby if the camera's out of focus, which it often is. But it's nothing more than that. It's not, it's, it's sort of one-pixel evidence kind of stuff.
4: It is. It is. And you, you would expect the evidence would, would get better and better every year, right? I mean, think of where we are with technology today. We've got people, you know, most people walking around have high-definition cameras, you know, in their pockets with them at all times on their iPhones their smartphones, right? There's more astronomers looking into the skies. We have better telescopes than ever. And yet, the evidence doesn't improve, the the quality of UFO photos (laughs) does not improve over the years. Well,
2: tens of thousands of people have reported sightings of UFOs. I mean, that that happens every year. It would (laughs) seem that these eyewitness reports would uh, constitute extraordinary
4: evidence. I mean, can tens of thousands of Americans be wrong? absolutely i hate to be so blunt but yes you know i mean the the, the problem is that th- there's a gap between someone seeing something in the sky uh, let's just assume it's not a hoax let's say let's say that someone actually genuinely does see something weird in the sky that they can't identify what does that mean does that mean it's a ufo no it just means that they can't figure out exactly what it is and so oftentimes is this what's called an argument from ignorance if someone says I don't know what that is therefore it's an alien and you know, i mean the problem is that there's so many different facets to if ufo sightings. are they seeing venus are they seeing a known light in the sky one of the biggest problems is that you can't tell scale right anytime that you have uh, an object against you know an ambiguous background such as water or sky if you don't know the distance you don't know the size And because of that, people say, oh, it must have been huge. Well, it it could have been 10 feet away and, you know, five inches wide. Or it could have been 20 miles away and 200 feet wide. You just don't know. Do you have a laundry
2: list, Ben, of objects, phenomena that are responsible for a lot of these UFO photos and
4: videos? I mean... Well, there's there's really a wide variety. It depends on what exactly the claim is. You know, many of the videos and photos that we see are flat-out hoaxes. Uh, they are just, you know, somebody was having fun with Photoshop, and they're like, hey, let me see if this can go viral. In other cases, many of these photos and videos are not hoaxes. They're things that were of known objects at the time, but then because they're spread on social media, they've lost that identification. So for example, I've investigated several cases in which there were mysterious lights and clouds. And for example, at one point, a few years ago, there was a a story about a, a supposed city that you could see faintly in clouds, I think it was taken over China or something. And it's likely that it was an optical illusion. It wasn't a hoax. It wasn't intended to fool anybody. But someone just took a photograph of this. And they probably knew what it was at the time. But then when, when this gets shared around on social media, the information about that photo evaporates. People are like, oh, look at this. Isn't this weird? And so you have people who took the photo originally probably knowing what it is. But by the time it gets spread across the Internet, that gets stripped away. And all it is is some weird photo. So that's, that's part of what happens.
2: Ben, you've been called a debunker, and that suggests that you set out to prove these claims wrong. I mean, that your mind is already made up ahead of time. So couldn't we say that while, yeah, I have a vested interest in finding aliens, you have one in proving that they're not around?
4: <laughs> you, you, I've been called a debunker, among other things, <laughs> for, for many years now. I mean, look, the fact is that I would love to find aliens. That would be so cool for me. I would love for you and me to find an alien, Seth. You know, I personally don't care whether aliens exist or not. I find it interesting intellectually, and just as an idea, you know, is there life you know, elsewhere in the universe? And that's that's a fascinating, worthwhile topic and subject. But I get paid whether aliens exist or not. <laughs> And so, you know, I don't have a vested interest in trying to debunk aliens, but what you find is that for a lot of the conspiracy theorists, they look at the work that I do and other skeptics do and they say, oh, you know, oh, you're you're part of NASA's payroll. Like, I haven't gotten any checks from NASA at all. Where's, where's my check, Seth? What's going on here?
2: Well, this conspiracy, I mean, it gets to the charge that I myself hear a lot. Maybe I'm not telling the public what I really know or mm-hmm. the government is keeping secrets. Well- We all know how hard it is for the government to keep secrets. But also, I can't imagine any reason why I'd keep information that would, you know, after all, make my career, put me in the history books. Why would I keep that secret? But if I point out to someone who's convinced that alien craft are visiting Earth that, uh, sorry, but your evidence is just not good enough to warrant an exhibit at the Smithsonian or maybe the (laughs) Victoria and Albert Museum... They say that the really good evidence is around. It's just being covered up. What about that?
4: Well, there's a couple things here. You know, they're trying to blame other people for their inability to generate good evidence. If you ask the UFO believers in the buffs, say, like, okay, where is your evidence that aliens are abducting people? Where is your evidence that you know, a saucer crashed at Roswell, etc.? Their answer is, well, they won't give it to us. It goes back to the nature of the the mind of the conspiracist, and I've written about this and researched it before. And it's fascinating, you know. It's they they feel that that there's some larger hidden truth that's being kept from them maliciously, and you know, I I've gotten hate mails uh, and oftentimes from UFO believers who think that I'm part of this conspiracy to to hide information. And I'm like, why, why, why do you think that I care whether you personally have evidence uh, of alien life? It, it just doesn't make sense. The other part of this that is bizarre is that you see these conspiracists talking about how, well, you know, NASA's trying to cover up life and scientists don't want us to know about other life out there. But then that same week, I read in the New York Times, there's a front page headline, Earth-like object found, you know, in a distant galaxy. And like, well, hold on here. What? Did these, did these scientists not get the memo? Because you, you have these scientists making international news saying, hey, everybody, we found this possible Earth-like object out there. Well, <laughs> why would they be doing that if they're if they're trying to cover up the fact there might be life out there? Yeah, there's no accounting for it, I, I have to say. But we've
2: heard earlier in the show from attendees at AlienCon who say that evidence of alien visitation would include, for example, the Egyptian pyramids. And after all, the pyramids are pretty impressive. It would be probably pretty difficult to move those limestone slabs into place and stack them up. How, how do we evaluate the pyramids as evidence that
4: aliens have been to Earth with the uh, you know,
2: construction permits.
4: <laughs> well, you know, I, I've been to the pyramids at Giza and uh, I've, I've talked to people around there. And if you talk to Egyptologists... Uh, it's actually insulting to posit that ancient Egyptians weren't smart enough to build a pyramid. Well, let me, let me follow up on that sure. a little bit, Ben, because
2: at the time of the pyramids, at least the first ones that were built, the Egyptians didn't have the wheel. And they do have to move these uh, big blocks. I mean, some of them weigh two tons. Move mm-hmm. them around, get them into place, and get them up high. Uh, right. yeah, I mean, is there any mystery about how that's done?
4: Well, no, I mean, you know, they, they use ramps. I mean, they know where the, the stones were quarried from. But but if somebody asks, look,
2: what proof do you have that the Egyptians built these pyramids other than the fact that they were living there?
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, th- that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is that what proof is there that aliens d- built them or that they weren't built by dragons or fairies? I mean, take your pick. You know, we know that the ancient Egyptians could build uh, large temples. They built Karnak, they built built many other ones as well and we have records of some of the building construction being built we know where many of the workers were buried we have receipts (laughs) ancient receipts talking about the limestone being quarried and where they came from so there's lots of circumstantial evidence you know do we have photos and videos of the pyramids being built of course not well, finally, Ben. What would convince you? <laughs> what would be convince me of, of aliens? Uh, you know, something more than what we have now. You know, don't send me another ambiguous photo. Don't send me another hoax video. Uh, give me something real. Give me something tangible. A spacecraft, a body, an alien implant that can be verified through science. Something other than what we have now. I would love to see it. I know you would love to see it. So it's not that scientists and skeptics are debunkers and you know are afraid <laughs> of what would happen if the public knew that these things were real. No, we want to find it. We, we'd we love to see that. Unfortunately, the evidence so far just isn't there. Ben Radford, thanks so very much for talking with us. Thanks, Seth.
1: Ben Radford is a research fellow with the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry and managing editor of Skeptical Inquirer Science Magazine.
2: Well, I found it interesting, Molly, that uh, Ben doesn't seem to have ever fielded a phone call or seen an email where he thought, you know, this is pretty good evidence. Well, here's a question on the subject of
1: evidence. What if the aliens are here, but they do not leave a trace? They're invisible. Their craft are invisible. And they leave no physical trace.
2: Yeah, well, of course, if you put it that way, then, of course, then they could be here. I mean, unfortunately, that's not evidence of presence, if you will, to say, yeah, they're here, but there's no way we can prove it. I, I'm afraid that that doesn't go very far. And you also have to consider the fact that there are all those thousands of reports every year in which there was some sort of evidence, right? They did see them. So uh, if they're here and you can't see them, then all those reports are clearly wrong.
1: All right. Speaking of beyond, that is the earthbound view of alien life. Why do we have reason to believe that alien life exists at all? And if it does, and it's intelligent, what are our chances of contact?
2: It's our monthly look at critical thinking. Skeptic check, aliens, the evidence. Ben Radford said that there's no credible evidence that the aliens have visited Earth in the past or are here now. But what's our reason for thinking that the aliens exist at all? Well, look, there are roughly a trillion planets in the Milky Way galaxy, and that's a number we didn't even know about 20 years ago. And maybe one in five of the stars of the galaxy have a planet that would be somewhat similar to the Earth. In other words, liquid oceans and an atmosphere. One in five. Now, it might not be one in five. Maybe it's one in two, one in ten. But it's not one in a million. That's the point. There are literally tens of billions of planets just in our galaxy that could support biology. Those are extrasolar planets? They are extrasolar. That just means they're around somebody else's star. Yeah. But there are a lot of them. That's the point. There's a lot of real estate. Okay, but aren't we just extrapolating, meaning that we understand how life
1: arose on this planet. We know approximately how many planets might be out there in the universe, and so we say perhaps life evolved on those planets as well. But that's not evidence of alien
2: life, per se. No, it's not. You're absolutely right. We haven't found any evidence of alien life. But on the other hand... It's kind of encouraging to note that at least the conditions for starting life might be out there in abundance. And it's on that basis that we say, you know, the galaxy is probably inhabited and not just by us. The proof, of course, is still to come. Well, some thought we had the proof when, in the fall of 2016, there was a
1: flurry of media angst at the news that the Russians had detected an unidentified signal coming from a star system less than 100 light-years away, which, compared to the size of our galaxy, 100,000 light-years, is pretty close. It's a star system that is known to have at least one planet, and the signal suggested that there might be someone there. Well... What happened when the story broke, Seth?
2: Well, I'll tell you what happened. My phone began to melt down because the media started calling. They were very excited about this. And, you know, I was suspicious, I have to say, right from the beginning. There wasn't any sort of prescience. But it is true that the Russians had looked 39 times at this particular star system, and they only found this signal once. To me, that suggested that that signal was actually due to a satellite around the Earth, not due to aliens or anything like that. Well, what was the signal like? A beeping sound or what was no, it? No. Well, they wouldn't have been able even to tell whether it was beeping. It was just some source of radio energy came into the into the beam, if you will, of their telescope, right? And uh, so they got you know some extra cosmic static for about a minute or two and then it went away. That's all they know. They don't know whether it was beeping or tweeping or anything else.
1: Well, did the Russians know all along what that signal was, or did they figure
2: it out just as we were all figuring it out? No, they had found the signal more than a year before the media heard about it. And they didn't make any noise about it. And to me, that means they themselves never thought it was truly an extraterrestrial signal. That idea came from a blog that had been inspired by an announcement by an astronomer in Italy who said, hey, this is a signal worth checking out. And that's, so, that's how it happened. So there was a whiff of innuendo in the media
1: and they ran with
2: it? Yeah, exactly Sh- right. Shocking. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> And yes. But the Russians, I guess, were sufficiently embarrassed by all this attention that by the end of this week, you know, where they we're getting all these stories, they put out an announcement that was saying, look, it was just a satellite. Well, the news from
1: the Russians ultimately proved disappointing, but it may not have come as a surprise to astronomer Paul Davies. He says that he's just not hopeful that we'll ever pick up an alien signal because of the way that we're running our experiments. Our current SETI experiments, which are looking for deliberate signals, may be proceeding on a mistaken assumption. Dr. Davies is the author of The Eerie Silence.
2: Paul, we haven't detected a signal from an alien civilization. What's the reason you would give for this uh, eerie silence?
6: Well, the simplest explanation is that there's nobody out there, but that would be really disappointing. Uh, There's another rather obvious explanation, which is that if you ask how close is the nearest civilization likely to be, well, even a seti optimist would think uh, maybe several hundred light years. And imagine that you're living on a planet going around a star, say, a thousand light years away. Let's take a rough figure. Then they see Earth not as it is today, but as it was a thousand years ago. And we imagine that if they had super duper technology, they could determine enough about the Earth to figure out that there's intelligent life here. For example, they may see the Great Wall of China or the pyramids, they see agriculture, something of that sort, and they may deduce that any millennium soon we would have radio technology. But it would make no sense for them to start beaming messages deliberately at us until they knew we were on the air. And they won't know that until our first radio messages reach them in about another 900 years. So listening for deliberately directed messages from aliens is a good strategy or it will be in about another 1900 years' time.
2: Well, it sounds as if you are convinced that the uh, intelligent aliens are out there in any case.
6: Well, I always wear two hats. The philosopher in me really wants to believe that we are not alone in the universe. I think that the universe, it's brought forth life on Earth, it's brought forth intelligent beings who can not only observe the universe, but have come to understand it. And to me, this is no trivial fact. It seems that this is deeply embedded in the nature of the great cosmic scheme of things. And therefore, I would expect the universe to be teeming with life and there to be intelligent life. Uh, So philosophically, Yes, scientifically, of course, I have to concede that at this time we have no evidence for any life beyond Earth, let alone intelligent life. We simply don't know. The biggest stumbling point is the transition from non-life to life. There's no lack of real estate out there where life as we know it may emerge at some stage. Plenty of Earth-like planets, uh, that's not a problem. But what we don't know is how non-life turned into life. Uh, And if you don't know how something happened, it's impossible to estimate the odds. It could be that given an Earth-like planet, the emergence of life is something that's almost inevitable. On the other hand, it could be uh, that you need a a sequence of freak chemical accidents that would happen only once in the observable universe. And it's worth noting that when I was a student and really passionately interested in the idea of looking for life beyond Earth, everybody thought I was crazy. One might as well have professed interest in looking for fairies. The prevailing view among most scientists, and certainly among biologists, is that life is so complex and so special and specific in its complexity that this surely wouldn't have happened twice. Now the pendulum has swung and everybody says, most people seem to say, that the universe is teeming with life. But actually, the science hasn't really changed. We're still just as ignorant about the mechanism that turned non-life into life as we were then. If we knew the answer to that, we'd be in with a much better chance of estimating the odds. Notice that once life gets going, uh, of course, the transition from microbes to intelligent life is something that still we have difficulty in figuring out how likely that is, but at least we know how it happened. We have a theory that explains it, Darwinian evolution. We don't have a theory telling us how non-life turned into life, at least not one that is agreed by everybody, so we can't work out the odds of that.
2: Let's uh, return for a moment to uh, the question of intelligent life, and in particular, the Fermi paradox, often used as an argument against cosmic company. The Fermi Paradox says that if aliens were out there, at least in decent numbers, some of them would have colonized the galaxy by now, and we don't see any evidence of that. How strong is this argument?
6: I've never been very impressed by this Fermi Paradox argument because there are many, many reasons why there could be intelligent life, but it would either not choose to spread across the galaxy or simply would not be able to afford to do so there could be all sorts of physical engineering and financial reasons that would make that not worthwhile and it's also possible that intelligent life has spread across the galaxy not in the colonizing sense but the exploration sense uh, we can't be sure that in the 4.5 billion years that our planet has existed that the solar system hasn't been visited by alien technology of some sort at some stage in the past. It would be very, very hard to determine that. If, for example, a hundred million years ago, uh, some sort of, uh, I'm not gonna say alien spacecraft, because that gives the impression of a big ship with uh, flesh and blood beings stepping out, but some sort of alien uh, gizmo had come to the solar system, maybe landing on one of the planets or on our moon a hundred million years ago, even if it uh, just stayed there, how will we know what sort of traces might be left behind after 100 million years? Well, there are some traces, there are some things we could look for, but the solar system is very big, and it's a needle in a haystack search. So I wouldn't rule out the possibility that within our solar system is the remnants of some sort of alien technology, alien probe, whatever you want to call it. Uh, And if we could have some better idea of what to look for, then it may make sense to go look for it.
2: So, you have no problem with the Fermi Paradox because there's maybe no contradiction there. It may be that there are plenty of societies out there, and the absence of evidence at this point is not evidence of absence. What about the possibility that our efforts to find the aliens, which involve, for example, using big antennas to try and eavesdrop on radio signals, SETI, uh, are doomed uh, simply because the aliens don't broadcast? There are people here on Earth who say that that might be dangerous.
6: Yes. Now, I'm a strong supporter of SETI, and I think it should be broadened, but we should get away from this idea of a message and shift instead to the notion of a techno-signature. What do I mean by that? Something uh, out there in the universe that looks fishy, uh, that doesn't have an obvious natural explanation, that could be the product or a signature of alien technology, maybe very advanced technology, uh, that would simply betray the existence of intelligent life without telling us very much more about it we don't have to get a message deliberately crafted for mankind directed to earth for us to answer the question are we alone in the universe we merely need to see some evidence of alien technology somewhere out there or maybe even in our own solar system uh, which is sufficiently weird that we could rule out any natural explanation so That very much opens up the search space. We should carry on, of course, listening for radio signals, but we should go beyond that and look at all of the things out there in the universe that somehow stand out as anomalous or don't fit in or could betray some sort of uh, alien technology at work.
2: Well, here's another argument about uh, the fact that we haven't yet picked up any signals from the aliens. Maybe maybe it's just a technical problem. Uh, We don't have enough sensitivity. The aliens are far away, we simply can't detect their signals using stuff that's been built after all, only about a hundred years after the invention of radio. Maybe the aliens expect that we have far greater technical capabilities similar to what they presumably have.
6: Well you're absolutely right in the following sense, that if we had enough sensitivity, even if they're not deliberately beaming messages at us but just chattering among themselves, we could eavesdrop on that and, and pick up that traffic but we're going to need something very much more powerful than what we already have but this uh, really comes back to my point that we need to get away from the idea that somebody is making it easy for us by directing messages at us to let's just look for all possible signatures of alien technology in all easily searchable databases. I have a particular philosophy that you don't base your search on what is plausible, you base it on how much it costs. And so uh, to give you an extreme example, genomic data uh, from microbes and other species on earth is uh, uh, coming in vast quantities. It's free, On the internet, you can search uh, with computer algorithms for next to nothing. Uh, We could search all of that to see if there might be some sort of, uh, I hesitate to use the word message, but some evidence of tinkering in terrestrial genomes. Very, very wild idea. I'm not saying that that's even remotely probable, but it's very easy and cheap to do. Uh, Same thing, you could scour the moon. Uh, The moon is being mapped to half meter resolution by the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. The pictures are free and available on the internet. We could look for signs of any ancient uh, alien technology that hasn't yet been buried over tens of millions of years on the Moon. So these are the things you can do and I think we should search every available astronomical database that's easily searchable because you have no idea how a very advanced alien technology might manifest itself. So it pays to be as broad-minded as possible, look everywhere, and when we see something that looks decidedly odd, then we have a discussion about it.
2: Paul Davies, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
6: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
1: Paul Davies is a physicist at Arizona State University, the director of the Beyond Center there, and the author of The Eerie Silence, Renewing Our Search for Alien Intelligence. So he's not making the argument that the aliens don't exist somewhere in the universe, intelligent aliens.
2: No, he's not at all. Uh, but what he is saying is that the kinds of experiments we've been running may be the wrong ones to find them. I, I think that Paul's position is this. Look. We're looking for signals that might be deliberately beamed our way. Those would be the easiest ones to find. But Paul points out that, you know, they probably aren't doing that because they haven't heard from us yet. They're too far away to have heard our own signals from television or radar, whatever. And so he's saying rather than try and look for a deliberate ping from the aliens, look for evidence of their society, either, you know, big engineering projects or signals that they're using for their own communications. In other words, shift the emphasis of the search.
1: Have you considered what the aliens might ping out if they were sending a deliberate message? What might it be?
2: Well, there are only two possibilities in my mind. One is that they just send a whole lot of information. Because after all, if they're very far away, you know, they're a thousand light years away. It takes a thousand years to get here. You're not going to get into conversation with these guys. So maybe they just send everything at once to save you the trouble. Uh, On the other hand, maybe all they do is they just send a a high-intensity ping here because they've got other worlds to ping. And what they're trying to do is incite you to encourage you to say something back. They don't care that it takes thousands of years. And then they'll get into the serious chit-chat. Uh, And, of course, in movies, the aliens often uh, threaten us. They come to Earth for uh, nefarious purposes. It's hard to understand why they would do that. And there is very little that we have here that they don't have at home, right? Certainly not any of our natural resources. That isn't a good incentive. But if they don't come here, the storyline is a little weaker for Hollywood. Well, in Hollywood, Mars needs women. That's a reason to come to Earth, Yes, it also needs men. In fact, it just needs life. (laughs) (laughs) It also needs water, by the way. (laughs)
1: Well, pioneering SETI scientist Jill Tarter says there is reason to be hopeful that we will make contact. She explains and also gets us up to speed on two additional weird phenomena that have been found recently and that have yet to be explained, and what she thinks of the idea that one is evidence of an alien megastructure, whatever that is. Well,
2: we'll find out. It's our monthly look at critical thinking. Skeptic check. Aliens. The evidence.
7: Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: If you've seen the movie Contact, you know Jill Tarter's job description, The SETI astronomer, played by Jodie Foster in the film, is in many ways very much like Dr. Tartar. Yeah, there are 400 billion stars out there, just in our galaxy alone. If only
1: one out of a
0: million of those
5: had planets, all right, and if just one out of a million of those had life, and if just one out of a million of those had intelligent life, there would be literally... Millions of civilizations
1: out there. We talked earlier in the show about the balance of fact and speculation regarding cinema aliens. In the movie Contact, the trip through the wormhole is pretty speculative. But the search for alien societies by using an array of radio telescopes, that is actually happening. Jill Tarter was the first director of the Center for SETI Research, and she has spent countless hours scanning computer displays
2: looking for a signal. Her ambition is to find a transmission from an alien civilization, and she tells us what we should make of two strange claimed pieces of evidence for alien presence that have been brought to light in the last two years. One is the behavior of an object
1: known as Tabby's Star, a stellar system 1,500 light-years away, also known by the very catchy moniker KIC 8462852. The Kepler Space Telescope found that this star irregularly dims, as if something were getting in the way.
2: The other item in the news is the strange behavior of more than 200 stars cataloged in the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. Now, these stars seem to have regular changes in brightness when their light is examined carefully. Could there be a galactic club that's trying to make contact with potential new members? Dr. Tarter, not
1: surprisingly, does not believe that we're alone. As for whether we should be discouraged that our SETI telescopes have not yet picked up a signal. Well, I say consider the ratio between
3: a half century, 50 years, and the age of the galaxy, 10 billion years, the age of our sun, 4.5 billion years. I mean, we're applying human scales to cosmic time scales to make a judgment here. And I, I think that uh, we are such a young technology that it would have been almost unbelievably extraordinary if, at the beginning of our search, we had succeeded.
2: So you're saying it's just that we haven't done it long enough?
3: I'd like to say that if you take all of the factors and parameters that we think are appropriate to this search, and you take the volume of space that you'd need to search through those nine parameters and say, okay, that volume, that's equal to the volume of the Earth's oceans. So how much have we searched in 50 years? And it is, in fact, numerically equivalent to about one glass of water out of the Earth's oceans. And so it's not a very big search. If you were looking for fish, that's an experiment that could have worked. There are fish that could fit in your glass. But if you scooped one glass out of the ocean, I doubt that you would decide that the ocean is without fish.
2: But another argument that's sometimes used is that, uh, well, okay, life may spring up on lots of worlds. Getting biology going may not be so hard, but intelligent life is perhaps quite improbable. If the dinos hadn't been wiped out, we wouldn't be sitting here.
3: We wouldn't be sitting here. That doesn't mean that an intelligent creature capable of building a radio transmitter and even a radio station for doing interviews wouldn't be sitting
2: here. So, okay. So is there any argument that you find the least bit credible about the fact that uh, maybe they're just not out there? Um, Let's see.
3: Yes. uh, Let me say this. I've already mentioned that we are a young technology in an old galaxy. We actually don't know whether it's possible for us or anyone to become an old technology. And of course, If that isn't possible, then there isn't anyone out there that we
2: will be able to detect. What are you saying? They self-destruct?
3: They self-destruct. They decide to turn off whatever technologies they're using. Uh, They turn inwards. They do something, but they stop using the technology, which at the moment is our only proxy for extraterrestrial intelligence.
2: Okay. So they become undetectable for whatever reason. Well, let's consider some recent events that suggest that maybe they are detectable. Certainly, in the media, there have been numerous stories recently about what may be an indication that uh, we have some cosmic company. Uh, to begin with, there's Tabby Star, KIC 8462852. It's a very intriguing object. Tell us a little bit about it and why it uh, might indeed be home to some clever critters.
3: Well, Tabby star was detected by a group of citizen scientists looking at the light curves from the Kepler spacecraft, which are made public. The light curve, which is how much light are you getting from a particular star as a function of time, is a way of detecting exoplanets because if there's a planet in orbit around a star, in the appropriate orientation, then sometimes that planet will pass in front of the star. And as it does, it dims the light from the star a little bit. Usually 1% if it's something as big as Jupiter, a hundredth of a percent if it's something as small as the Earth. And Kepler, in fact, missed the dips that are happening with Tabby star. That is, it saw the dips, but it didn't call this out as an exoplanet because the dips are not periodic. They come about apparently randomly. Now, the software knew to ignore that. That's not going to be an exoplanet. But the citizen scientists who saw it said, this is really interesting because the light isn't dimming by 1%. It's dimming by 15%. That's huge. Something amazingly large is blocking the light from that star, and it's doing it in a way that isn't periodic. And it also turns out, as we have looked with greater detail now over the last couple of years at the data from this star, the star itself is also gradually changing its luminosity. So in addition to these massive dips, we've also got a temporal evolution of this star that's unusual.
2: Okay, so this star, Tabby star, because of the uh, name of the woman who led the team that found it, Is dimming and dimming in a way that can't be due to a planet. Something else, maybe something else. um, An alien megastructure.
3: Well, that was the idea of last resort. The scientists that uh, worked with the citizen scientists to try and understand what was going on took much more traditional explanations: comets, disks of debris, lots of other astrophysical phenomena that we know about to try and explain it. And there are problems with all of the explanation. One of the most troubling things is that if there's a lot of material of some form around this star, you'd expect to see infrared light from it, and we, we don't. So idea of last resort, it's somebody's astroengineering
2: project. But but uh, the Institute has looked at this object with the Allen Telescope Array, hasn't found any signals. Uh, Maybe you could expect signals, if there's an alien megastructure, maybe there's an alien transmitter.
3: There might well be an alien transmitter. It might not be working at radio wavelengths. It could be optical communication uh, over the planetary scale distances. Or it could be that they were on a lunch break and, you know, we have no idea what their time scale is, but we looked for a little bit over a week at this star at various frequencies. We didn't see anything, but it is an unusual object. It is a singular object at the moment, although there is a suggestion that there is another similar type star that actually has a disk of debris around it. Um, we'll look again.
2: Let me talk about another example that's been in the news the claimed by a couple of Canadian astronomers that they found in a sample of more than 2 million star systems, they found 240 or so that seem to be, if you will, winking at us in visible light. Uh, And they're suggesting they're all winking the same as if it's some sort of agreed-upon interstellar signaling project.
3: Yeah. Uh, 234 pulsing stars, Seth, coming out of 2.5 million spectra that were collected by the Sloan Digital Sky Survey for understanding the nature of the universe. Now, the spectra themselves don't look very extraordinary. There was a lot of numerical processing that went on to end up with a claim that there is an artifact in the data from a few 234 of these stars. It's very hard to know at the moment whether it's a real phenomenon or whether it was introduced by the numerical processing that's been done to get from the raw spectra to the claimed results, and it's also very hard to tell whether in fact the phenomenon is imposed by the instrumentation itself. The authors of this paper argue no, it's not instrumental, no, it's not anything that we did numerically, uh, but the arguments are quite weak, well, it and sound, it we sounds need like... to follow up and redo
2: this it sounds like, okay, when you look at 2.5 million stars, uh, the very slightest uh, inaccuracies in the instrument or some sort of uh, systemic uh, effect that's due to the instrument might show up like this and give you the idea that there's something going on that has to do with something beyond Earth, right?
3: Right. Or even just the mathematics that you use, that Fourier transforms a particular mathematical tool. It, in fact, can give you problems sometimes and introduce things that aren't there. For me, the most incredible thing is that if these really are ETs, they have all decided to pulse at exactly the same
2: period. Yeah. A degree of cooperation you might not expect, (laughs) particularly given the fact that they're separated from one another by, you know, maybe hundreds of light years on average, something like that. much larger than that. All right. Well, then let me conclude by asking you, look, Jill, you've been doing this for most of your career. You've been looking for the extraterrestrials for a long time now. You're still optimistic that we're going to find something? I'm still as optimistic as ever
3: that we currently have the tools to conduct a scientific exploration to try and answer this very old question. And it is as relevant a question as it has ever been with all of the exoplanets and extremophiles and the universe appearing, over my career anyway, to be perhaps more bio-friendly than when I started. We are talking about habitable worlds. It's time to go see if any of them are actually inhabited, and maybe we can do that with radio telescopes and optical telescopes, and it's what we should be doing. And 50 years is 50 years. Big deal to a human, but not so much to the cosmos.
2: Jill Tarter, thanks so very much for joining us. You're very welcome, Seth.
1: Jill Tarter was the director for the Center for SETI Research in Mountain View. She now serves on its board of trustees. Well, what we've heard in the show, Seth, at least one consistent theme is that everyone would like to find aliens.
2: Yes, right. And, and by the way, that's a difference between those who think that they're here. And that's, as we've noted, quite a few people. And things like the SETI search, where we're still looking for evidence, because the former think that they already have the evidence, the proof that they're here. I mean, there's a lot of witness testimony, you know, pilots, uh, astronauts, and certainly a lot of the public who say, you know, I saw something in the sky. But as Ben points out, most of that is pretty poor. I mean, you look at the, the pictures and the videos and so forth, and witness testimony is never very good evidence for science even if the witnesses themselves are, you know, credible people. So no
1: solid evidence that the aliens are here, but also no solid evidence that they're out there.
2: Not yet. Nope, absolutely not. And that's, you know, you could say, well, all right, so we're kind of on an equal basis here. But as I say, there is this difference that the SETI scientists don't claim that they found evidence for ET, whereas the UFO crowd, of course, thinks that they have.
1: Well, thank you to the people who, despite never having seen an alien spacecraft land in their yard, be specific there, never miss helping us produce the show. Senior producer
2: Gary Niederhoff and Operations Manager Barbara Vance. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Scholsky David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Junior Foundation. Big picture science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears
1: have been attuned to the skies, we hope, but also to our monthly look at critical thinking, Skeptic Check. This episode is Aliens, The Evidence. If you'd like to hear more Skeptic Check or other Big Picture Science episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive at BigPictureScience.org.
2: And if you're a listener who prefers to hear our show on over-the-air radio, because you might just tune in the aliens, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show.
7: Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimburger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimburger.org. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily
2: Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more.